It's time to be about that life, the startup life. Here's your host, Dominic Lawson. All right, Startup Nation, I hope you're ready to receive some value today. My name is Dominic Lawson. That's G on the ones and twos. And this is the Startup Life, the show for entrepreneurs and career-minded professionals. And today, Startup Nation, it's a big one. It really is a big one. First off, it's the 150th episode of the Startup Life. I just want to say, as always, when we hit these milestones, thank you for allowing me to serve you on your entrepreneurial path, your entrepreneurial journey. And with that being said, Startup Nation, we have an amazing, an amazing guest for you today uh, on the show. He is a serial entrepreneur. He's also the co-founder and first CEO of Netflix. He's the board chair of National Outdoor Leadership School. And he's also the author of That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. Startup Nation, without further ado, Mark Randolph. How's it going, Mark? It's going pretty well, Dominic. Thanks for having me on the show. Congratulations, 150 episodes. Wow. Yeah, it, it's been a pretty, pretty amazing ride, so I appreciate those kind words. Are you ready to pour some knowledge into Startup Nation today? Absolutely. All let's, uh, let's, see what we can, let's see what we can do. If I, have, if I have anything to share, it's all yours. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, let's do it. So first things first, Mark, because in doing my show prep, I actually saw that you have a connection to Memphis, something about uh, somebody who used to be a big cotton magnet here. Kind of share with us that story a little bit. Yeah, Julian J. Hohenberg III, okay. as a matter of fact. Uh, and actually, it's true. My very first job out of college was in none other than Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and it was crazy. It was, you know, you, you alluded to the fact that I, I was, I'm currently the chair of something called the National Outdoor Leadership School. Mm-hmm. But way back when, this is back in 1981, um, I was used to be an instructor for the school. We were taking people out in the mountains. And one of the people that went on a Knowles course, not mine, was Julian J. Hohenberg III. Okay. was the uh, inheritor of a huge cotton company fortune. And he was so taken with his Knowles instructors that when he found out through a connection about me and that I was a Knowles instructor, he said, this guy's got to come work for me. Mm. And that found me living down in uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, just about two months after getting out of college. Awesome. awesome. And I, I got to say, it was a, it was an eye-opener. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. That's definitely going to play well here in this in this market, Mark. So I appreciate you sharing uh, that story. And once again, Startup Nation, the book is That Will Never Work. And it's the story about how Mark was the, the, the f- co-founder and first CEO of Netflix. And so, Mark, I want to ask you this. Uh, because first of all, I actually not only did I read the book, I actually listened to the audio version uh, as well. So I heard you actually read the book for sure. So you know, I know it was like sixteen years after you uh, did the uh, no after you left Netflix. What made you write the book after that? Why wait so long? You know, if I had written the book right after I left, maybe it would have been more historically accurate because mm-hmm. I certainly would have remembered more details, but. I would have missed the big picture. And really the reason I wrote the book was I wanted people to understand the real story behind Netflix. Gotcha. And I don't just mean who said what, when. I mean to understand what went into taking an idea and making it real. And it took me 16 years to begin to recognize what were the things that we did right? What were the things that were just luck? What were the things that we thought were important back then, 
but in the light of history, didn't really make that much of a difference. And the bigger reason is that since leaving Netflix, I've had a chance to work with hundreds of early stage entrepreneurs and helped many, many people get their companies off the ground. And what I've really realized is just how many of those things I learned at Netflix are universal, that these are Mm. things that anybody can use to get their idea off the ground, whether it's a big idea, whether it's a for-profit idea, whether it's social entrepreneurship. There's some general truths about startups that I thought I wanted people to see how they were put into action. And, you know, going back to National Outdoor Leadership School, or Knowles, I wanted to ask you this because there's a part in the book where uh, I think where you uh, go on, uh, where they drop you off uh, in the middle of nowhere and you kind of have to navigate your, your yourself through the wilderness and stuff like that. And you kind of talk about how you learned a very important lesson that proved vital later on in your career at Netflix and beyond uh, about how to ask, about kind of related to pitching and stuff like that, but more so how to ask for things. Can you kind of share that story a little bit and what you learned? Yeah, sure. In a, and I would work, I would teach Knowles courses for two months per mm-hmm. summer. But the third month, I'd work for a different school. It's called the Wilderness School. Okay. And it was one of those programs that takes, I guess they say, disadvantaged youth or sometimes adjudicated youth okay. into, the, into, into, the, into the mountains. And it puts them in difficult situations where they're telling themselves, there is no way I can rappel down that cliff. And then, of course, they do rappel down that lift that cliff. And you can give them this lesson about the thing they thought was impossible, in fact, was possible, and you try and translate that to their life. So to make this more meaningful to the instructors, they wanted to put us in a situation where we were uncomfortable and didn't know how, in an alien environment, the same way these kids were in the woods. And the way they chose to do that was to drive us to a city. And in my case, it was Hartford, Connecticut, and drop us off, take away our wallet and our watch and our ID and our money, and say, we'll see you in three days. And then we would have to survive, quote-unquote, in this urban environment. And it was amazing, because it was, it was really hard. Um, you know, I figured, okay, I can figure out someplace to sleep, but I'm hungry. Right. And, and at first, I would do that thing where you kind of float around the outside of the food court at the mall. Right. And then you wait for someone to get up and walk away from a half-eaten plate of food and not bust the plate. And then you just swoop in there and you eat those leftover French fries. Um, <laughs> but the lesson that you're alluding to is I decided that I was going to cut out the middleman. I was not going to do it that way. I'd go, I wanted to get some money and I'd buy my own food. And so I decided I was going to panhandle. And I'm going, how hard could panhandling be? And the answer is uh, really hard. Mm. I mean, it's going up to someone on the street and putting your hand out and asking for money for nothing. And it took me a couple hours to get my nerve up to ask the first person and probably another couple hours before someone finally gave me things. But by the end of the day, I learned this critical skill, which was to make an ask like that, a something for nothing ask. The most powerful weapon is purpose, Mm. is to say, I'm hungry, and to show it. And so they felt it. It's true. It was a big lesson because when you're raising money for a startup or even when you're trying to convince people to come work for you or help you in some way, it's close to being the same naked ask. You're asking them to quit a great job, 
to come work for way less money for no benefits, or you're convinced to put money into this venture, which has no apparent way it's going to succeed. And I had to do that for Netflix, which is go up and ask people for money. I had to ask my own mom for money. Right. But I will say that after you've panhandled on the streets in Hartford, Connecticut, that asking for $25,000 is pretty easy. And speaking about asking for money, in the book, you also talk about how things have kind of changed when it comes to funding a business and asking for funding from a VC and stuff like that. Because you talk about when you were kind of starting Netflix, you could just kind of have an idea on a napkin or just kind of have pretty much just an idea. But now... These days, you really kind of have like a proof of concept, but you also talk about how uh, in this day and age, it's a lot easier to like build a website faster, get like an e-commerce site up and running and stuff like that. Do you think that shift is because you're able to have a proof of concept easier or is it because of the dot-com bubble in between now and then? What do you think that is? Oh, it's absolutely because the infrastructure is so much better. Gotcha. No question about it. Okay. You know, back then, we started Netflix, and we had the idea back in 1997, right. you know, 23 right. years ago. And back then, if you wanted to do an e-commerce website, well, you had to build it yourself. If you wanted to connect to the inter- internet, you had to get your own servers and your own routers, and you had to wire everything together. If you wanted your own security, you built it yourself. If you wanted to accept payments... You ought to write your own portals to the bank payment processing systems. So even doing something simple like renting DVDs by mail took us six months just to put the website together. It took us a million dollars. But of course now, you know, everyone listening knows that, hey, you want to do a website? Great. You go to Squarespace, pull it down, you're up and running for in five minutes for, you know, nine ninety five or something. Right. And if you want payment processing, you go to PayPal. If you want security... Everything is easy. But what's great about that is that back when I was there, the distance from idea to validation was months and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now the distance from idea to validation is minutes and no money at all, which means any idea you have, you can really quickly and easily try it. And I've concluded that is fundamentally changed the art of being an entrepreneur. It is no longer about having a good idea. It's hugely democratizing. You don't need to have a track record. You don't need to be older. You don't need to have a certain education. You don't need money. You just need the cleverness to take your ideas and figure out how to quickly and easily and cheaply try them. Absolutely. And that has been what's created the explosion of um, entrepreneurship and the democratization of entrepreneurship, but it doesn't just happen in Silicon Valley. It happens all over the world now. It's a great, great time to have ideas. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. One of the uh, stories I did love in the story was, you know, in the book was about launch day because you talked about, you know, leading up to the launch and you talk about after lunch at nine o'clock that day, everything was great for 15 minutes. Mark, what happened after that 15 minute mark? Well, that's a great follow-up to the previous comments about how hard it was back in 1997 to build a website. Right. And on that moment at 9 o'clock in the morning, I wasn't worried about, well, what's Blockbuster going to do? Or mm-hmm. how are we going to transition into streaming in 10 years? Or what? how are we going to get a contract for Orange is the New Black? Or whatever. I was worried, well, this stupid little website we threw together work. And at 9 a.m., we threw the switch. And we all stood around kind of waiting. And we had rigged it up so that 
whenever an order came in, if an order came in, a bell would ring. Right. Um, and we all were there. We had in one corner of the room the champagne to toast our first order. And it didn't take long. It took about a minute. And then, ding, that first order. And we cheered. And we began opening up the champagne. Um, and then a few minutes later, ding, 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 like three more orders. And we're all cheering and we're laughing. Um, and a few more minutes go by and it's kind of quiet. And more minutes go by and it's still quiet. And we go, is this, you know, what's going on? Is this plugged in? And it turns out that in the first 15 minutes, we had crashed our server. Wow. Yeah. And so <laughs> rather than me spending that first day toasting my success as a new, uh, a, a new entre- newly minted entrepreneur here, right. I spent that whole day driving back and forth to the big electronics store buying all the components to not only limp along our one server, but to try and put in place three or four more to try and make it through this first day. And, you know, we, we did, we had our first day ended with something like 113, 109 orders, which blew my mind because I never expected that many people would come to this site, especially in the first day. That was the whole first month forecast. Right. Right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, say now it's like a, 109 ah, there's 160 million subscribers <laughs> exactly like, who could exactly. have ever i could never have imagined that happening for sure for sure thank you for sharing that for sure so in, in that same vein mark i, I want to ask you this because you talked about it up and down the book many entrepreneurs and small business owners go through it almost every day and is managing crisis in that moment kind of talk about your philosophy in managing crisis, not only from an internal standpoint with your team, but also from an external standpoint with the ultimate stakeholder, which is the customer. Yeah, um, I think, you know, you we started off by talking about why it took time to write this book. And a lot of it was me thinking about what is it that really are the important factors that go into being successful as an entrepreneur. And I've kind of concluded that one of the most important ones is, I call it, it triage. And, you know, in triage, you're probably familiar with that, is that's that it's basically splitting, um, in the original case, injured people in war into three groups. The ones who, there's some group who are going to die no matter what you do, and some are going to survive no matter what you do. And the middle group, they'll die if you ignore it, and they'll live if you take care of it. And that's the one you want to focus on. Right. And I think that triage applies absolutely to a startup. Because in that case, you have a hundred things that are broken, hundreds of things that are on fire, that are screaming for attention, but you only have the capacity to do to deal with a handful of them. And too many entrepreneurs feel they have to get everything right. Mm. But what I think I've realized is the really successful ones deal with that chaos by having, one, this intuitive sense of which of these hundreds of things that are broken, if they just focus on these two or these three then everything else won't matter. And they may not even be the things that are the screaming the loudest or apparently the most important. But then they have to have this corresponding second skill, which is the ability to focus on those and relentlessly go, I'm going to get these things right. And the more chaos, the more you have to have triage, the more you have to focus on the handful of things that if you get them right, you'll make it. Like at the beginning... There was a million things, you know, how do we get every single DVD? How do we get our shipments right? How do we make sure our website works? Right. But fundamentally, if you don't have customers, nothing happens. 
And so at the beginning, I decided number one was I had to get customer flow, even if the website wasn't ready for it. And this was not trivial because originally we were a DVD by mail business and there were hardly any DVD player owners. Right. And everything I did was focused on that one thing. How do you find these needles in a haystack? For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. And so, Mark, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is kind of a, you know, one that I'm always talking to my audience about because I always talk about how, you know, a great CEO is one that's always willing to do whatever is best for the company as a whole, because the company is what ultimately matters, even if that means sacrificing yourself. And you talk about in your book where there's a very interesting conversation between you and Reed uh, about, you know, the next phase of Netflix. Can you kind of share with us that story and why was it for you to like, to ultimately decide, you know what, this is what's best for Netflix. Yeah, this was, when we started the company, um, Reed Hastings was my angel investor, but he wasn't working at the company. Right. Um, you know, he was chairman of my board, but I, you know, I was got the bill, got the bill, rented the space, hired the people, the whole thing. Right. But not long in, um, Reed was come popping in every now and then, checking in on things. We'd talk all the time, and. One evening, one early, late afternoon, early evening, I was at my desk and all of a sudden Reed pops his head in and he goes, you know, Mark, we need to talk. And as anyone who's ever heard someone deliver that line, they know (laughs) that's not going to be necessarily good news. Right. And Reed came in and, you know, he had his his notebook computer with him and he kind of sat me down and kind of began walking me through this uh, PowerPoint slideshow. And started out well enough about all the positive things he saw with the company, but then it quickly segued into areas where he was concerned, mm. concerned about my judgment, concerned about my hiring, concerned about some strategic choices I was making. And at first, I was starting to freak out because, you know, uh, what was going to happen here, I thought maybe I was getting He's going to fire me because he had more stock than I did. But what I realized was that what Reed was really saying was that he was concerned about where we were going. And he wasn't saying that I was the wrong person. He was saying that this company is going to be stronger if there's two of us doing it. Gotcha. And he was proposing he come in full time with me uh, to run the company, that he would come in as a CEO, that I would slide over. Um, be president, but um, he'd be in charge, uh, and we'd run it as a a couple. Gotcha. And that was really, really tough because I had had this dream of starting and running this successful company, and I realized that now that we were going, now that we'd raised money, we had customers that it wasn't just my dream anymore that it, this dream of a successful company belonged to the employees and to the investors and to the customers. And I kind of realized also that it was kind of two dreams and they were separate ones. One was the, the dream of me running the show. Right. And the other dream was being successful. And I ultimately decided that it was more important in this case to do everything I could to make sure the customer was success, the company was successful. Right. And it was hard to argue with the fact that having Reed and me together was not going to make that the case. And it's not like I 
came to fully comfort with this in five minutes. Right. I mean, it took, a, you know, it took a, a long night of, of tossing and turning and an evening of sitting out in the porch with my wife, having a bottle of wine. And, but ultimately I decided that this was the best thing. And, you know, if I have to look back on all the decisions that I made as um, CEO of Netflix, in many ways, that probably was the best decision I ever made, which was to bring Reed in. Not only because once he joined, those next few years were in many ways the renaissance at Netflix. Absolutely. But then certainly look at what he's accomplished, you know, since then. For sure. For sure. A quick follow-up, Mark, if I could, because you you also talk about how this happens in startups all the time, where the, the people who start out with the company are not necessarily the ones who move forward. Uh, you know, stay with the company moving forward. It's kind of, you almost kind of talk about the people in that next iteration of employees are kind of like super specialists. Kind of talk about that that transition from the people who start out and then match. You know, as the the company uh, matures, moving to people who are like kind of those super specialists to kind of grow the company even further. Yeah, it's a very hard thing as a founder of a company to watch that happen, right? Because you're right at the beginning. When you have that thing I described a few moments ago with a hundred things on fire, you have these people who are generalists right. who can rush one fire to the other, and they have the skills, the basic skills to do almost anything and do it in a very self-directed way. But if you're lucky and your company begins to scale and you begin to have some financial resources, you find yourself in this position where you can afford and have the reputation to bring in some really superstars who know way more than you do in, let's say, marketing. And another person knows way more than you do in sales. Another person way more than you do in operations. But as you bring them in, the people who sacrificed for you, who worked like crazy, who gave everything to the company, are no longer the right people. And it requires this very painful but very honest conversation with them about it's time for us to bring in someone for the next stage, and it's not you. For sure. And in, in my cases, I had to deliver that message a lot. And in my case, you know, I recognized that it applied to me too, that I wasn't the right person to run this company long term, that the skills that I had were great for an early stage company, but were really mediocre or poor as a company got bigger and more complicated. Gotcha. Got you. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm so glad you pointed that out, Mark, because we live uh, in this day and age, you know, in entrepreneurship where a, a lot of it is more about vanity than the company itself. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you you kind of highlight uh, and pointed that out. So I appreciate your value that you added there for sure. Well, I'm actually going to kick it over to uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, I actually mentor in a group here in Memphis called Light Memphis. Let's educate through edu- let's innovate through education. Uh, And it's equipping African-American Latinx students with 21st century skills to create wealth through entrepreneurship programming. And so we have uh, where we have uh, students come in 16 week program and they go through an entrepreneurship course and it culminates in a pitch night. And I actually have a pitch night winner with me, Asia Jackson, who's going to ask you the next question. Go ahead, Asia. Hello, I'm Asia Jackson. And I just have one question for you. What do you consider the first step in forming a company in general? Because many people get discouraged and when they want to actually start a company, but they don't generally know the first steps or the first step in that matter. So the question is, what, what, what's the first step to take in starting a company? Did I hear you right? Yes, sir. Well, that's an easy one. The, sim- <laughs> the easy one to say, hard one to do. 
<laughs> and the biggest mistake I see new entrepreneurs do is they don't start. Mm. They have this idea and they love their idea. And their idea is at this point only in their head. And inside their head, it's nice and safe and warm. And so it's really easy to see how all the things you do in your head are successful. And in your head, the idea is getting bigger and bigger and you're adding on customers and then you do this, but it's all illusory. Mm -hmm. And the trick is, as soon as you have an idea, you've got to get it out of your head. And that's hard because the real world's a harsh place for ideas. Most ideas are bad ones. And, and let me give you a specific example. So way back in 1997, Reed Hastings and I were both going to be out of a job, and we were brainstorming ideas for this new company. And we had hundreds of ideas. And then one of the ones that popped into our head was maybe we can do DVD rental by mail. Now, good idea? Maybe. Bad idea? Maybe. Who knows? And so what we didn't do is then say, okay, let's go to the office and I'll begin working on a business plan, which would be having it in my head. We didn't say, let's go work on a pitch deck and begin raising money. We didn't go trying to book ourselves on a shark tank or something. We said, let's quickly collide this idea with reality. And so we just turned the car around mid-commute and drove back down to the town we lived in and looked for a DVD that we could mail to ourselves. And of course, there were no DVDs back then because it was in test market. So we went and bought a music CD and bought a little gift envelope. And we mailed the DVD, the CD to ourselves and demonstrated in less than 24 hours that this crazy idea, well, at least the first stage of it may not be so crazy anymore. So if you have an idea, first thing to do, figure out a quick, cheap, and easy way to collide your idea with reality. Don't build a minimal viable product. Don't try and raise money. Just figure out how to quickly get some data about whether your idea is real or not. I heard that. Thank you for sharing all of that, Mark, for sure. Once again, we're talking to Mark Randolph, the author of What That Will Never Work. So, Mark, one of the famous stories that's, that people often talk about is the one with Blockbuster, where you or uh, you and Reed were called in to go kind of pitch to Blockbuster, and everything seems to be going well, and then they essentially kind of laugh at you guys when you ask for $50 million, right? So, uh, But I want to ask you this, because, you know, as we know, Blockbuster is not really here anymore, but, but what I want to ask you is this. If you and Reed were on the opposite end and you were on Blockbuster's side, what is it that would have seen to say, you know what, we need to move forward? I guess basically what I'm asking is, what did Blockbuster miss about Netflix at that time? Because clearly it worked, right? But what were they missing? Well, the first thing, the clearly it worked part. <laughs> right. Now. <laughs> right. For sure. For sure. Clearly it worked. <laughs> but looking at that point wasn't clear. But the thing that they missed is probably the same thing that most, most big companies missed. And the, what they missed is not, they knew, or they were pretty confident that eventually movies were going to be distributed in a way other than over a counter at a blockbuster store. But they got caught up in the same thing that every successful company gets caught up in, which is um, we're not, we don't need to deal with that now. In fact, we don't want to distract ourselves by getting caught up in that now. Gotcha. Why do we want to take our best people and put them onto a business which at the best would maybe create 
1% of our revenues. We should have our best people on the core business. But in fact, the core business is what's slowly but surely going downhill. Right. And what they missed is that this was the future and they should have bet everything on it, even at the expense of somehow making their current business a little bit less powerful. And that's a really hard thing to do. But listen, that's, that's great news for all the entrepreneurs in your audience, that all these big established companies are very vulnerable because you're going to come after them doing something that they can't do or something they won't do or something that they're scared to do. And that's what makes it so exciting these days to be an entrepreneur. I hear that. I hear that. Thank you for sharing all that for sure. Mark, one of the last things that you were working on before you left Netflix was this idea of Netflix Express, kind of like this movies in a kiosk type thing, right? And then ultimately Reed said, you know what, we're not going to move forward with that. But your good friend Mitch, you know, took it and he developed a company that we may know and love. It's called Redbox. So I want to ask you this. Is Redbox the one that got away? <laughs> no, because, you know, listen, Redbox turned into a big, a big success. Absolutely. You know, Mitch Lowe. Right. But, you know, the reason that we that we just came back from this test of kiosk and decided not to pursue it at Netflix was that it was defocusing. Mm. So, yes, it would have been an interesting business, but right. it would have brought us into having to be in the hardware business and having to have people in all these geographies to service and restock these machines. And fundamentally, we decided that the effort it would take to be in that business was way better invested by focusing on our core business. I hear that. And um, I don't think that was a bad decision at all. And in fact, those decisions happen all the time. And I talk about it in the book, and we call it the Canada Principle. Right. Everyone says, hey, you can get 10% more uh, revenue just by expanding into Canada. It's easy. But these things that seem easy aren't easy. For sure. Different language problems, currency problems, cultural problems. And you realize that 10% way, way better invested at your core business. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. So, Mark, I want to ask you this because, you know, I, I saw an interview that you gave uh, a few months ago where you're talking about streaming services and everybody's wondering, is there too much in the marketplace? Is there saturation in the marketplace when it comes to streaming? And you say no, that competition is good. But what I want to ask you, Mark, is this, because what I'm thinking about is the customer, because, you know, there was a point where I can just pay one price and I have all these channels. But now I feel like I'm kind of getting nickeled and dimed here. Well, ultimately, that'd be a, a problem in the marketplace. Do you uh, kind of foreshadow a little bit? So I don't think so. I mean, yes, right now, we're a few years ago, we were all paying one price. Right. I don't know about you, but my one price was like $119 a month or something right. crazy. Gotcha. And now I'm paying three prices. You know, I'm paying six ninety five for Netflix and four ninety five for Disney or whatever, whatever, the, whatever the numbers really are. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to pick and choose. I think ultimately, I mean, there's like 250 streaming channels right now. Right. And right. it allows you to specialize. And I don't mean but from the business side, I mean the consumer side. Like I subscribe to some crazy stuff. I subscribe to one channel which only streams Australian rules football because I really <laughs> love watching AFL. Gotcha. And uh, that just wouldn't be happening. That's never going to be carried by Comcast. Gotcha. Um, and so it allows us to fundamentally have choice. And I think, uh, I think choice is great. And I think, is everyone going to have to choose one? No. Are they going to have to have all 250? No, either. They'll pick three or four that suit their needs. 
and they'll still be paying a fraction of what they were paying before, and they'll be getting much better content. So, Mark, I, 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 you know, when we said that we were going to be talking to you uh, today, I, I kept getting this one question. I, I have to ask you. Uh, because, you know, as you know, sometimes we build companies and they kind of become part of cult, pop culture. Right. <laughs> and so you are very much aware of the, the phrase Netflix and chill. So I want to ask you this. When you first heard about that phrase and what it meant and stuff like that, what first came to mind? <laughs> well, you know, uh, when you start a company, a lot of things are out in the future. Right. And, uh, you know, one is what's are you ever going to be? a I never imagined we'd be in every country in the world. I never imagined we'd have 160 million subscribers. I never imagined we'd be up for Oscars for uh, Absolutely. movies we produced. But I, I got to tell you, I never saw Netflix <laughs> and chill coming. <laughs> got you. Got you. Thank you for sharing that for sure. Uh, I want to ask you this. And once again, Startup Nation, we're wrapping up with Mark Randolph, the author of That Will Never Work. So I want to ask you this because, you know, we have many great entrepreneurial duo, duos. You have Gates and Allen, Brandon Page, Wozniak and Jobs. Where does Randolph and Hastings rank in that regard? Oh, well, certainly you picked a whole bunch of good ones. Those, those, <laughs> those companies you named have all created huge, uh, enduring uh, companies, including, you know, I'll put Netflix in that category, and I'm Absolutely. extremely flattered to be in that category. But I think one of the things it demonstrates is that being successful, despite what culture says, is not a one-person thing. Mm. It is wrong to think that starting a company is all on you. It is very much a team effort, and not just a Wozniak and Jobs or Hastings and Randolph. But at Netflix case, there was dozens of people Absolutely. each contributed a little bit of themselves into this DNA that makes the company successful. And when you realize that, it's a really healthy thing. It's a team effort. You have to build a team. You've got to create a culture um, that allows many, many people to help, where everyone's ideas are accepted. That's what makes it a great and enduring company, not just one or two famous people. For sure. I'm so glad you said that. And when you talk about that, you know, Mitch Lowe comes to mind that we talked about earlier. Also, Patty McCord, who you know, who's often cited as kind of revolutionizing how we look at HR and companies and stuff like that. So I'm really glad you said that for sure. As I read the book, Mark, you know, you know, there, there's many people who come, you know, uh, into the book, you know, often Hastings, you know, McCord, uh, Mitch and stuff like that. But there's one common denominator, and that's your wife, Lorraine. How important has she been on your path to entrepreneurship success? Well, uh, uh, critical, I right. would say. Um, and but largely not because she's in the background doing the accounting or something like that. Right. But because I recognized early on how important balance was, uh, and not just when starting a company, in anything. I mean, I vowed really early on that I did not want to be one of those entrepreneurs who was on their sixth company, uh, but also on their sixth wife. And I said, we are going to make sure that this is a partnership that I spend time with my best friend. Um, and it's not an easy thing to start a company and maintain the relationships in your life. But if you make it the priority, you can do that sort of thing. And Lorraine was always there. I mean, she was the person I could come home to and, and, and we could sit and talk about things and give me the sense that the company's not everything. There's other aspects of our life that are important. 
I had this really quickly. I had this sure. tradition where every Tuesday at five o'clock, I would leave work and leave my papers on my desk, and we would have a date night. And I didn't care if you know if there was a crisis. Well, we're going to resolve it by five. And if you have to talk to me, well, great. We're going to talk on the way to the car. But the cool thing is that you can talk all you want about the importance of balance and family time. But if you're not demonstrating it, it's just lip service. And when people saw that I was willing to walk out at five o'clock once a week, then they began doing it. And it created this culture that it was important to have more than just your work. And I'll, I'll close by really saying... You know, I said Netflix is my was six is one of seven companies that I've had a hand in starting. Some quite successful, but when I um, ask about what I'm most proud of, it is not starting and growing Netflix. It's not Looker. It's not any of the other startups. It's that I did all those things while I was able to stay married to the same woman and to have my kids grow up knowing me and as best as I can tell, liking me right. and had time to pursue the things that I knew made me whole as a person. That's what I'm proud of. I hear that. Thank you so much. So Mark, really quickly, your entrepreneurial superpower and why? <laughs> Focus uh, is that I really have this ability to put the blinders on and recognize what's the key thing I have to do mm-hmm. and do nothing else but that. Um, really, really helpful, especially if you're not particularly talented in a lot of things. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. And so the last question, you know, before I ask you, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the Startup Life. We really appreciate the value and the time that you've given us. It really uh, great content uh, that we can definitely chew on and put in our entrepreneurial toolkit. And Startup Nation, I definitely advise that you put that will never work in your uh, book rotation because not only is it an amazing and full of value, but it really uh, reads like an amazing novel if you would, for sure. So, Mark, I'm actually going to turn the microphone over to you because there's an entrepreneur out there who's either stuck in their business or they're afraid to even start. Give them some words of encouragement to take us out today. So everyone who starts a business, every successful business started out just where you are now with nothing more than an idea in your head. And what separates the people who end up being successful with the business is that they start. They do something. They make something. They build something. They try something. They test something. And if you don't do that, if you don't take those steps, you'll never get there. If you wait until you know what's around the corner, well, someone's already going to beat you to it. Um, That risk-taking is fundamental. And if you're not out there doing it, you've got to ask yourself, what's holding you back? There isn't anything. For sure. For sure. And good luck. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. And that's going to wrap up our time with Mark Randolph. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the show. This was great, and I really appreciate you having me on. Oh, no worries. Thank you so much. All right, Startup Nation, so we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. we got to pay some bills. Once again, my name is Dominic Lawson, and you're listening to The Startup Life. This fresh coat of the Startup Life has been sprayed on nice and smooth by Wagner and the Flexil series of paint sprayers. Startup Nation, my wife decided she wanted to rehab her childhood home. The goal was to fix it up and invite a nice family to rent it out. We knew one of the biggest jobs we had to undertake 
was painting. However, from the walls, the cabinets, and even the siding outside, it was going to be a big task. As entrepreneurs with a company to run, we knew this was going to take up a lot of our time, which is why we decided to get a paint sprayer. And after much research, we decided to go with the sprayer from the Flexio series from Wagner. Startup Nation, these sprayers are top-notch because of its flexibility to paint or stain walls, furniture, cabinets, and more. It's 10 times faster than using a paintbrush, which was a big selling point for us. And you can paint or stain right from the can. It's also easy to clean in five minutes and being great for indoor and outdoor projects, a paint sprayer from the Flexio series clearly needs to be part of the arsenal in your garage. So if you're ready to stain your deck or like me, feel your daughter's request of a bubblegum pink room, up your game with a paint sprayer from the Flexio series by Wagner. Take it from me. Your time will thank you. All right, Startup Nation, welcome back as we continue our conversation with today's guest here on The Startup Life. All right, Startup Nation, so today we're going to go in a little different direction today. So we have uh, Rana uh, Shanawani on the show today, the Executive Director of the Women's Center of Entrepreneurship. How are you today, ma'am? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Uh, we are okay. We are okay. So as you know, Startup Nation, you know, with everything going on with COVID-19, uh, President Trump signed into law the uh, $2 trillion CARES Act, which, you know, kind of enacted the PPP loan to kind of help small businesses. But it's been a little bit of controversy uh, due to a lot of large firms uh, getting those funds and not necessarily going to small businesses. Just to kind of put it in perspective, 13% of the recipients you know, uh, receive 73% of those loan dollars. And that can be uh, quite, a, quite problematic uh, for small businesses. But Rana, what's your take on all this? Kind of break that down for us a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. To be able to submit the PPP application, it requires a daunting amount of paperwork to support the application. Mm-hmm. And it, that usually requires a small army of staff. And in, my, in our experience, we're helping micro-businesses. So micro-businesses, by definition, are considered five people and less. Right. And the definition of small business is considered 500 employees and less. So when you talk, when you think of a quote-unquote small business, you're talking about a seven, eight-figure business. Right. But what we're, what, the people that we want to help at the Women's Center for Entrepreneurship are the people that are probably mostly making five and six figures. Right. So think about, so if you think about that, you're a five and six figure business owner. They're probably not going to have the capacity to submit that application. And and I'll give you an example. So we actually submitted as a nonprofit, we submitted Mm -hmm. and we were able to pull together the documentation, but only because I, we have a full-time finance, staff person. Plus, we have a bookkeeper who comes in once a month. Plus, we have an accountant who does our audit once a year. Plus, we also have a professional payroll processing company. So, we were able to pull those documents together the day before we submitted, but it's it's safe to speculate that a lot of the really small micro-businesses don't have all of those capabilities and don't have access to all of those types of reports. And so that's, that's what I'm seeing is that 
it was daunting for a lot of clients to be able to submit. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. And you were uh, quite critical, you know, of uh, what was going on, saying, quote, this is devastating for small businesses that are relying for PPP funds uh, to pay employees rent and ultimately see the loan of uh, as a lifeline to keep the lights on, end quote. And so, we're, like I said, we're seeing a lot of those small businesses, some closing temporarily, some closing, uh, you know, kind of for good, mm-hmm. which is, is just really a, a shame. Uh, you know, and we did. Now we did see some of those large firms give some of that money back. What's your take on that? I think that that was definitely the honorable thing to do, and that mm-hmm. was very heartening. I think seeing them give that money back, and there is still a lot of money that's on the table that right. is ready for people to apply to, and we're definitely doing our best to give them all the technical support that they need. So, although the documentation is daunting, I wanted send a clear message that you sure. can still do it. And even if you are a five and six figure business, you can still do it. We can help you to do it. And it just takes a little bit of a little extra time and a little extra efforts. But we have a lot of the information and we can help answer questions. And that's what we've been doing for the last, how many weeks has it been now? 12, 16 right. weeks right. that we've been doing this. And we're taking, we're holding these it was in the beginning daily webinars. Now it's every other day and getting everyone's questions, researching the answers, getting back to people and whatever, whatever the question is, we can either have it, we either have the answer or we can help find the answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of those large firms did have like the manpower uh, to kind of get that, that documentation Mm kind of squared away, which makes it easier for them. Uh, to kind of do that for sure. I want to ask you this because, you know, we get this question a, a lot of time, you know, uh, whether it been even in, in the 2008 financial crisis and probably even now that some of those firms that, yeah, they are big firms, but they employ a lot of people. So kind of like ultimately there is some good in it. What do you say to that? I would say that that's legitimate. And I, mm-hmm. you do see a lot of people, I mean, I'm just talking anecdotally from people in my town. Right. There are a lot of people I know that are, that are doing well and they're thriving and they're continuing to provide for their families and continuing to patronize local small businesses. So that is being redistributed. So I do think that there's some legitimacy to that. Let me ask you this. What, you know, let's say we could, you know, if we could rewind the clock, I mean, obviously if we could, we would get rid of COVID some kind of way, but if we could rewind the <laughs> clock on the, the rollout of the PPP loan, what would I think could have been done differently so that way more small businesses uh, could have access to the loan. Now, granted, you know, we do know that there has been an extension that's been put in place, but if you could roll back that clock a little bit, what would we like to have seen to get uh, to have an easier access for those small businesses? Is it like a, a easier, you know, uh, route through the paperwork? Is it more visibility, more uh, uh, advertising to see that is out there? What do you think could have been done uh, retro- retrospectively? Yeah. If you don't mind? yeah. So that's an excellent question. I think the first thing that could have been done was really to examine what other countries were doing, mm-hmm. specifically that process and those types of that type of paperwork that they were issuing out to their constituents. I think that would have been the first thing because I think other countries had done all of this before us and it would have been great to reach out. And I know for a fact, for example, Canada had all of this squared away before we did. I think that having said that to the credit of Congress, 
and I am quite critical, normally speaking, but they, I have to say, tried, they listened to their constituents, and week after week after week, they improved the process, and they improved everything in favor of small businesses. It was, it was shocking, I have to say, but it was every, every couple weeks, it was, okay, guys, we're changing the rules, they're changing the rules, and we're going to help you walk through that with these new applications. But to give an example, in the beginning, it was you had to submit 70 for forgiveness of the PPP. It had to be 75% for payroll mm-hmm. and 25% for other types of utilities. And they changed it because there was a lot of feedback and it became 60-40 instead. Gotcha. That's just one example. For sure. But it, it was it was one after the next after the next that got better and better and better. And of course, this is unprecedented. Right, so, of course. They did have to react very quickly, but it was great. I have to do it. It was very heartening to see (laughs) and shocking to see the government working so well and helping small businesses. That's true. That's true. Thank you for sharing all of that. And Startup Nation, you know, if if you want to check out uh, the Women's Center for Entrepreneurship, we have a link there in the show notes for easy access. If you're listening to the replay on the podcast that and if you're listening on radio, it's www.wcen.com. I'm sorry, WCECNJ.org. Once again, we have a replay in the show notes. If you listen to the replay on uh, the podcast, kind of talk about uh, the organization, the Women's Center for Entrepreneurship. And outside of helping people kind of navigate PPP, what else are those other services and uh, help that you provide for small businesses? Sure. Thank you for asking that. So we're also very lucky that we received a a very big grant from the SBA. All of the women's business centers across the country were eligible to apply for this grant. And with that, we were able to expand our services. Now, year-round, we give classes and one-on-one counseling for small business owners. And during COVID, we were able to expand those services specifically to help with COVID-related problems. And so... If you go, right, so if you go to our class schedule, I think we added another 20 plus classes to help people navigate. And you can see if, it's, if you look on our website right now, it's things like how do we open? How do we open a retail business in a safe way that's in compliance? How to shift from a brick and mortar to e commerce right. so that people can continue to thrive? Uh, COVID funding for minority owned businesses. How to even run a Zoom meeting. We had so many people who just didn't even know how to run Zoom. And so we're doing everything that we can to help business owners. We held a lot of listening sessions and a lot of business innovation sessions to ask people, tell us what you need so that we can find subject matter experts, offer these classes, offer these counselors, and they can be there for you. Whatever it is you need, we can do it. We can help you. So just continue to communicate with us and we'll find that information for you. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing all of that for sure. <laughs> I, I want to ask you this because we're kind of in this 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 kind of golden era of entrepreneurship and, and women are kind of let's just let's just say it, they're kicking butt in this entrepreneurship game, right? <laughs> I, I want to ask you this. Can I sh- share with you your commentary? And if you have a story, please, by all means, share it. Uh, what is, you know, uh, your commentary on the state of women entrepreneurship in this golden era? Well, I'm going to steal your phrase, which is women are kicking butt. Right. I totally agree. <laughs> and I, I, it's, we hear this a lot from our clients, that they're looking for the work-life balance. Mm. They want to be able to run their business 
when they want and how they want. And we have so many clients that left the the whole system of being in corporate. And they said, I just couldn't do it anymore. I started to have a family and I needed to have more flexibility. And they had a passion for something and they decided to launch the business. So yes, we are kicking butt and we we need this. Women really need this because the gender roles haven't changed that much in right. terms of the whole work-life balance challenge, that balance challenge, right? Right. Let me ask you this, you know, like just kind of like on a personal level, right? You know, because everybody has a story. Why does this work uh, there at the uh, Women's Center for Entrepreneurship? Why does this work personally matter to you? My drive comes from my background in public health. Okay. So when I was, when I was studying public health, I noticed there was all these different sub, sub, sub subjects within the program, and it was things like nutrition and maternal mortality and education. And the one thing that I noticed that could cure all of those issues was someone's economic status, mm. and specifically women. So there was a model that was an experimental model that was conducted in Bangladesh the Grameen Bank, where they started lending out to men in the beginning, mm-hmm. and they noticed that the return rate on those loans, when we're talking $20 loans for someone, for example, to buy a chicken, sell the eggs, and pay that loan back. Right. And the return rate for men was very low, and he changed the model. He ended up winning the Nobel Prize for this, Muhammad Yunus, and he sh- when he shifted the model to women, the return rate on those loans skyrocketed and there was 90 plus percent return rate and the women invested that money in their children, their nutrition, immunizations, their families, sending them back to school, which they had pulled them out because they needed them to help. So they were able to send them back to school. And so when I saw that, I said, okay, this is it. This is the silver bullet. Helping people on this social economic way, in this social economic way is what will help solve all of community's problems. And that's what really drove me personally, and that's why I do what I do. I hear that. Thank you for sharing all of that for sure. Startup Nation, we're wrapping up with Arana Shanawani, the executive director of the Women's Center for Entrepreneurship. Once again, if you want to check out that website, that is WCECNJ.org. We have a link there in the show notes if you're listening to the replay on the podcast. And this is just if you need help with, you know, your business or if you're trying to navigate that PPP loan, which we're all trying to figure this thing out. That is COVID. Uh, definitely uh, link up with uh, Rana and her team there as well. So before I let you go, Rana, just kind of give some words of encouragement because there's a lot of small business owners out there. They're, they're, they're a little discouraged. Kind of, kind of, you know, power the troops a little bit if you don't mind. Sure. Well, I want to say that normally we would charge a symbolic fee to all of our clients, but because of COVID and because the SBA gave us this grant, mm-hmm. we're very happy to be able to offer all of these services completely free of charge. So please awesome. come to us. Let us help you. Whatever the case is, take a class, get a one-on-one counseling session. And I'm sure, And if we don't have what you need, let us know what you need, and we'll go out there and find it for you in terms of information or technical support. I hear that. I hear that. Thank you so much. And once again, we want to thank Rana Shanawani, Executive Director of Women's Center for Entrepreneurship, for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Rana. Thank you, Dominic, and thank you, Startup Nation. No worries. If you want to let us know what you think about our show, have an idea for a show topic, or would like to advertise on our show, 
Send us a message on the Startup Life Podcast Facebook page. And while you are there, like and follow our page as well. It's a great way for us to engage with you, Startup Nation, and really grow our community. The link is there in the show notes. Subscribe to the show as it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or even on your Facebook timeline or any other platform you like to get your podcast. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you find our content valuable, please give us a five-star rating as it will help us climb the charts and help more people find our show. You can also listen to the show on the Startup Life Podcast new website. There you will find the all-new startup blog where I write on many topics that are interesting and helpful to you on your path to entrepreneurship. And hey, if you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life.